Hello and welcome to this podcast from Herbert Smith Freehills. I'm Jasveer Randawa of Council in our public law team in the London office. I'm joined today by Andrew Lidbetter and Nusrat Zahar, both partners in our public law team. During a previous edition of this podcast, we discussed our thoughts on some of the proposed changes to the UK human rights regime documented in a government consultation paper. On the 22nd of June, perhaps a bit quicker than anticipated, the government laid its interestingly titled Bill of Rights Bill before Parliament. There is a lot that can and has been said about this major constitutional development, but in this episode we'll summarise just some of the key points from the Bill from our perspective and briefly discuss our views on those changes. The Bill follows the proposals laid out in the consultation document fairly closely, although there are some notable changes and additions. The Bill states that it seeks to clarify and rebalance the relationship between the UK Courts, the European Court of Human Rights and Parliament. The starting point is that the Human Rights Act will be repealed in its entirety, although the government still intends for the UK to remain a party to the European Convention on Human Rights. It seems clear that this bill would put UK human rights law out of step with that of the European Court. Indeed, that seems to be very much the point of it. Like many others, we do have concerns that the bill, in its current form at least, would constitute a significant change to the UK's human rights regime that will make it harder for claimants to enforce their rights domestically and have wider implications for the rule of law. So let's get into the detail of the bill. Andrew, please could you explain to us what the bill introduces by way of replacement to Section 2 of the Human Rights Act? Uh, Yes, of course. The new bill removes the obligation in Section 2 of the Human Rights Act that currently requires courts to take into account Strasbourg jurisprudence. Instead, Clause 3 of the bill states explicitly that domestic courts may diverge from Strasbourg jurisprudence. Moreover, a court is not allowed to adopt an interpretation that expands the protection conferred by a convention right unless it has no reasonable doubt that the European Court of Human Rights would adopt the same interpretation. Additionally, the position of the Supreme Court as the ultimate judicial arbiter is emphasised. Of course, that was always the case in domestic terms, but including this explicit provision does seem to send a signal. These changes are all in line with the government's stated aim of allowing UK human rights to develop by reference to a wider range of jurisprudential sources. Thank you. And what are HSF's views on these changes? As we said in a previous edition of this podcast, and indeed in our response to the consultation paper, uh, we didn't see any problems with the current approach represented by Section 2 of the HRA. The reason for this is that it ensures that courts should not take a different approach from the Strasbourg Court, although there is some room for departure in appropriate cases. If the UK is to remain a signatory to the European Convention, we think it's appropriate that our human rights law develops in sync with that of Strasbourg. The whole point of the Convention is that it creates a set of international standards, not varying national standards. Additionally, it seems to favour a more restrictive interpretation of rights. In effect, Clause 3 of the Bill allows for divergence from the Strasbourg Court, but not in situations where a court would be minded to take a more expansive approach to interpretation. 
it, it is unclear what expanding the protection means here. More expansive than what? Previously, domestic courts were required to provide no greater but no less protection than the European Court of Human Rights. The principle is now no greater but potentially less protection. Yes, and I see that this is made explicit in the explanatory notes to the bill that explain that the European Court of Human Rights approach will be a ceiling, but there is no floor. Given that the UK will, in the short term at least, remain a signatory to the Convention, a divergent strand of human rights case law will likely put us in breach of our international law obligations. The result will simply be more litigation in Strasbourg, greater costs for claimants and public bodies, and eventually a higher number of adverse judgments from Strasbourg, which could start to impact the UK's international reputation. Moving on, Nusrat, why don't you talk us through some significant changes to the process of interpreting legislation introduced by the new bill? Just by way of brief reminder, Section 3 currently requires courts to interpret legislation in a way which is compatible with convention rights, so far as it is possible to do so. We initially thought that the government would replace this with language that was less strict. In fact, the new bill removes this obligation in its entirety. In its place, it introduces Clause 3.2, which requires a domestic court deciding a question on convention rights to have particular regard to the text of the convention right, as well as the preparatory work. Additionally, the court may have regard to the common law in interpreting the right. And what effect do we think this will have on the UK human rights regime? I think that much depends on how differently domestic judges approach the new legislation as compared with the Human Rights Act. In general, we supported Section 3 as a sensible way of respecting the boundary between ensuring convention rights are applicable in the UK and preventing the courts from straying into the role of the legislature by distorting the meaning of the primary legislation. The case law showed that the courts didn't tend to use the Section 3 interpretative power where it would go against the grain or purpose of the legislation, so the will of Parliament was already being respected. This change seems to be trying to restrict the ability of courts to interpret legislation in a convention-compatible way. If that is actually the result, then that would mark a real step backwards in the protection of convention rights in the UK, leaving only the general principles that Parliament has not taken to have intended to legislate in breach of international law, and clear words are required to override fundamental rights. Another proposal that was foreshadowed in the consultation is Clause 7, which gives some intriguing guidance on proportionality. Yes, it does. Clause 7 relates to situations where the UK court is considering compatibility with convention rights and must consider whether an appropriate balance has been struck between any combination of the following matters, namely different policy aims, different convention rights, and convention rights of different persons. In determining this balance, the court must have regard to the fact that Parliament, by passing the re relevant legislation, considered that the appropriate balance has been struck. Equally, the court must give the greatest possible weight to the principle that in a parliamentary democracy, the balance should be decided by Parliament. This is a slightly peculiar provision because, in our view, UK courts already give significant weight to policy decisions made by Parliament, 
and have repeatedly voiced their reluctance to become involved in choices between different policy aims. Also, this clause is only aimed at one part of the proportionality test. It doesn't seem, for example, to dictate the answer to whether there was a less intrusive measure that would achieve the same result. So it's difficult to predict precisely what this new provision will achieve. Yes, the use of the greatest possible weight, which isn't a commonly used statutory phrase, certainly seems to be directing the courts towards a particular outcome whenever they're considering the balancing test between the public interest and individual rights. But even if this factor is given greater weight, that doesn't necessarily preclude it still being overridden by other factors that also carry significant weight in the court's view. Moving on, I see the government has decided to extend the Declaration of Incompatibility mechanism to secondary legislation. That's right. As things stand, domestic courts can issue declarations of incompatibility when primary legislation is held to be incompatible with convention rights. The theory behind this is that it is important to draw political attention towards breaches of rights whilst maintaining parliamentary sovereignty. It would be wrong for courts to be able to strike down primary legislation on human rights grounds. The same democratic issues do not arise with secondary legislation, which is often made by ministers without much scrutiny. In fact, the courts have already developed principles regarding when they should strike down secondary legislation, and this is routinely done in judicial review cases. We were initially concerned that the government would extend the Declaration of Incompatibility mechanism to secondary legislation and remove the power of the courts to strike down unlawful secondary legislation. Although Clause 10 of the new bill does give the courts this new option of a Declaration of Incompatibility, it retains the power for courts to strike down secondary legislation. Although it's not ideal, uh, we would prefer not to see declarations of incompatibility used for secondary legislation. It's certainly preferable to a situation where the courts would only have the declaration of incompatibility mechanism with respect to secondary legislation, which would have created real concerns over accountability of executive power. One point worth making is that it's, it's difficult to see how the courts will choose between the use of their strike-down power and the Declaration of Incompatibility Power when faced with incompatible secondary legislation. A Declaration of Incompatibility isn't really an effective remedy for the individual claimant who's won their case, as it can take years to see any practical change. We'll have to wait for developments here, but I would hope that the general position remains that unlawful secondary legislation simply be struck down. Next, I'd like to talk about the proposed permission stage in human rights claims. What's the bill said about this? The new bill, in line with the Human Rights Act, states that only a victim of an unlawful act can make a claim against a public authority. However, Clause 15 adds a new permission stage to human rights claims, which requires an individual to show that unless the claim is wholly exceptional for public interest reasons, they have suffered a significant disadvantage. Do you think that's a practical step? Our view is that a permission stage is unnecessary and potentially harmful to deserving claimants where the full extent of the harm may not come to light at the permission stage and therefore they would be denied access to justice. 
In particular, this change to procedure is also likely to lead to greater costs and delay in human rights litigation. And many human rights cases proceed by way of judicial review where there is already a permission filter. I can also see that there might be considerable satellite litigation on what exactly constitutes a significant disadvantage. Although the bill does refer to the principles applied by the European Court of Human Rights, which uses the same phrase when applying its own admissibility criteria. Finally, we'll come on to damages. What changes have been made here? Clause 18 introduces specific criteria that the court must take into account when deciding whether or not to award damages following an unlawful act, including, as envisaged by the consultation proposals, the conduct of the relevant person, regardless of whether that conduct is related to the unlawful act. In addition, great weight must be given to the importance of minimising the impact any damages would have on the ability of public authorities to perform their functions. Clearly, this clause is aimed at encouraging courts to further limit the already generally modest awards of damages for actions that are incompatible with convention rights. Presumably, that then means that claimants who've suffered clear loss, including specific financial loss as a result of unlawful actions by a public authority, will have less confidence that they will be properly compensated. That's even before you get into the point of principle as to how far it's appropriate in any civil claim where a wrong has been committed by the defendant to consider the conduct of the claimant. Well, we are where we are. So what's the next stage now that the bill has been laid before Parliament? It remains to be seen how the bill will progress through Parliament, whether elements will get dropped or altered down. It's worth noting that the Judicial Review and Courts Bill received fairly close scrutiny, particularly in the House of Lords, which eventually resulted in the government dropping some of the more radical provisions. There certainly seems to be vocal opposition to this bill too, so we might see a similar situation. Having said that, the government seems to have chosen to proceed at pace and sees this bill as an important part of its political agenda to, in their words, take back control. It may therefore be that the new bill becomes law quite soon. Yes, and a look at the summary of the consultation responses that the government received, where the majority seemed to think that these changes were unnecessary, with up to 90% of responses opposing some of the changes, such as the introduction of the permission stage, does suggest that the government will press on regardless. That brings us to the end of the podcast. Thank you to Andrew, Nusrat and to our listeners. We hope you found this information useful. If you would like any more information, do feel free to be in touch and keep an eye on our Public Law Notes blog. This was Jasveer Andawa, Andrew Lidbetter and Nusrat Zahr of Herbert Smith Freehills Public Law Practice in London.